and when he was alone those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables and he said to them to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of god but for those outside everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven and he said to them do you not understand this parable how then will you understand all the parables alrighty then this is the promised meat of last week's mark and sandwich <clears throat> remember that mark is a gourmet gourmet and he loves to make sandwiches and, and we see a lot of them throughout his gospel we had the um sandwich of the rejection of yeshua's or you may call him jesus's family tucked neat in uh, what three weeks ago and <clears throat> tucked neatly into the middle of that we had the beelzebul controversy last week we had the bread of the parable of the sower and the explanation in the middle of it yeshua talks about who can and cannot hear and understand his parables <clears throat> we'll be going back and delving into the incident with Yeshua's family and uh, the Jerusalem scribes this week because that provides the background as well as Isaiah 6. So much diverse material to pull together. Can she do it? Well, we'll see. <laughs> Hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist and welcome to Character in Context where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of scripture. And, and has post-nasal drip um, with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah if you prefer written material. I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com I apologize for all this snorting and sniffing that you have to listen to today I was outside doing yard work for a while and that just never <laughs> that never bodes well for this <coughs> All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version. But you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. I don't really care, just as long as you aren't one of those people who think that Hawkeye and Falcon aren't real superheroes. Because a gal really does have to draw the line somewhere. Anyway, a list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. <clears throat> Let's start out by talking, <coughs> goodness sakes, about Isaiah 6, which Yeshua makes reference to here. And this is starting in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. <clears throat> and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. <clears throat> for my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. <clears throat> and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. <coughs> then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. <clears throat> Long section of scripture I know. But I so dislike it when people just quote the bit they want to teach, or misrepresent, out of context. <clears throat> it's important to have the whole thing here. Because, you know, here we have another reference to seed. Like last week we did the parable of the sower, right? This time, holy seed being the remnant of Israel. As opposed to last week in the parable of the sower, where it was the word of God. Prophetic books are often recorded out of order. <clears throat> Just check out Jeremiah sometime, and it's like being in a time machine back and forth across the reigns of different kings. The order may offend our modern sensibilities, but the ancients didn't have that problem. They were interested in the story and not in precision. We could learn a lot from that. Mark certainly doesn't like to stick to established timelines because it gets in the way of his overall narrative of themes. If God had wanted it all chronologically arranged, I imagine it would be, right? Now, <clears throat> if you listen to my series or read my series on Isaiah 40 through 55, I talked a lot about how Isaiah is set up. Chapters 1 through 39 are all about Get your act together or else. And 40 through 55 is talking to the people after the or else has happened. And they're nearing the end of their 70 years of captivity. And they still aren't accepting responsibility that what has happened isn't a failure of Yahweh, but solely their own failure because of their sins against him and one another. <laughs> but this is before... Okay, this is before either of those things. This is the year Uzziah died, which happened at some point in the 8th century before the Common Era. 
This was the same year that Pekah become, became king of the northern um, kingdom of Israel. And he was the second of the last king before the northern kingdom was carried away by the Assyrians. This is roughly 25 years before the, the northern kingdom of Israel was exiled. <clears throat> but um, Isaiah... He preached to a generation who were not interested in waiting on, trusting in, or hearing from Yahweh. Isaiah was a king who started out well. And of course, the people would follow that lead. But <clears throat> he pridefully entered the holy place and burned incense to Yahweh, which was forbidden for anyone but the priest. And Yahweh actually struck him with leprosy. And he never recovered from it. So we have this situation here where the nation is in rebellion and heading into its final string of rulers. Yahweh is issuing his final pleas and warnings through his prophets and the situation is becoming desperate. They are repeatedly told to hear, to listen, to obey, to submit, to trust, to wait, to do almost everything except what it is they are actually doing. <clears throat> and Yahweh, like Yeshua, we're going to see today, is beginning to draw a line between insiders and outsiders, between the remnant and the rabble, so to speak, because unlike the first century Jews who were at least really trying hard, to keep the commandments, but had fallen into the trap of gratuitous hatred and fighting and even killing one another and neglecting the least of these. <clears throat> these guys just weren't interested in anything Yahweh wanted. At all. <clears throat> Excuse me. Their punishment, therefore, is just beyond the pale in comparison uh, to the destruction of the Second Temple by the Romans in 70 of the Common Era and the subsequent banishment of the Jews from Jerusalem in uh, 138, uh, 135 excuse me, of the Common Era after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Now, Yahweh says to Isaiah, starting in verse 8 here, <coughs> Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. <laughs> Alright, so what's important to see here is the question-response motif. Yahweh asks for a volunteer, and Isaiah responds eagerly. Isaiah has eyes to see and ears to hear. Isaiah receives understanding directly from Yahweh because of his response to Yahweh's call. This doesn't mean that Isaiah becomes suddenly omniscient and knowing everything. Obviously, he asks a lot of questions, right? 
So he doesn't know everything. But it means that Isaiah has been granted insider status with Yahweh, where he will not be among those who are deaf, blind, and unperceptive to what is going on. <clears throat> is he the only one in all of Israel? No. We hear throughout the writings of this time about thousands who are also receptive and listening. <clears throat> There's always a faithful remnant to whom Yahweh um, will, you know, leave their ears and eyes open. <coughs> Excuse me, gosh. But it required a proper response from the remnant, okay? As in the case with Elijah's complaint that he is the only man in Israel faithful to Yahweh, Yahweh corrects his misconception. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That's 1 Kings nineteen eighteen. You know, there are always people who hear clearly. <clears throat> not perfectly, but clearly. And who are granted understanding. Not understanding everything, okay? But having understanding. And the people who believe that they're part of that num number very often are not. So, <clears throat> insiders versus outsiders. Insiders are given are one, given understanding, two, not stricken with spiritual blindness, and three, not stricken with spiritual deafness. And it's not because they're important people, but based on how they respond to Yahweh's message in their time. In this time, the message was very difficult. All right, The nation was headed in a disastrous direction. They had a choice. They could cry, peace and safety, or repent and believe in the words of Yahweh's warning through his prophets. They made the rough choice, the tough choice, to believe that uh, Yahweh was better than how he was being misrepresented, misrepresented by his representatives. Yahweh rewarded them with his covenant faithfulness. In the first century, Yahweh again challenges his people by sending his one unique son with an entirely different message. Uh, not entirely different, but yet a message that was also prophesied in Isaiah. Yahweh's kingdom is now breaking into the reality, but it will not live up to the very specific expectations of national independence and the destruction of their human enemies. This messenger is instead battling those things which mar, corrupt, and devastate people. Instead of battling the Romans, he's taking on the demonic powers that have the Romans enslaved, which will be a huge theme next week. He isn't bringing in the wealth of the nations, but instead healing the sick, the crippled, and accepting the outcasts back into the fold. He's not making the community victorious militarily. He is making the whole the community whole. 
In fact, he is redefining the community and drawing lines between insiders and outsiders based entirely on how they react to his message. He references um, Isaiah 6 here because he's taking on the role of Yahweh speaking to his people. Instead of asking, whom shall I send? He calls 12 and gathers around him a great crowd of others who also believe. But the message as a whole is mainly the same. Go out and preach to this people. Challenge them to go on ignoring me to their own peril. And if they choose to ignore me, then they will be granted outsider status. They will no longer hear the voice of my prophets. Their words will go in one ear and write out the other. The truth will be right in front of them, but they will not perceive it. If they want to shun me, I will help them do it. That was Yahweh's message to Isaiah. All right. So let's look at uh, this week's scripture again. And that's, this is um, Mark 4, starting in verse 10. And when he, and this was in the middle of, between teaching the parable of the sower and giving the interpretation. And when he was alone, he being Yeshua, those around him with the twelve asked about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? So Yeshua right here tells his inner circle that secrets of the kingdom are for insiders and can only come directly from him. And insider status is granted only to those with a receptive heart toward Yeshua. But let's backtrack a few weeks here real quick. At the end of chapter 3, we see Yeshua's family come from Nazareth. His brothers and mother... Uh, and uh, they make a point of standing outside instead of coming inside. As his family, they had the honor rating among the crowd to be allowed in, but they did not choose to go inside. Inside, Yeshua is teaching, and some scribes from Jerusalem are among those gathered, and they have accused him of being in league with Beelzebul, the prince of demons, and somehow he is granting Yeshua the authority to put on a good show. So we have Yeshua and his message rejected by those who know him best and, and are saying, frankly, that he's out of his mind and by those in, a, in authority uh, who claim he operates according to demonic authority. And he's accepted mostly by a group of utter strangers. That there are a great many of them is evident. He's popular with everyone at this point except for the authorities and his own people. His own family, I mean. But the choices as to being inside and outside are all personal choices. 
all based on whether or not they looked at Yeshua and heard his message and saw his works, and whether or not they decided to recognize the character of God displayed or not before them. In Isaiah's time, it all came down to who do you think God is and what do you believe his works and message are? And in Yeshua's day, it came down the exact same thing. Who would recognize the God of Israel in this man who broke many man-made rules in order to heal, deliver, and accept the unacceptable, the unacceptable people? This man who wasn't interested in slaughtering the nations, but instead bringing them into the fold? A lot of it came down to being unwilling to let go of their hatred. And we suffer from the same problem today. Who do we bar the door of the kingdom of heaven to because we're not interested in their politics or their past or their particular sin struggles or whether they wear masks or not? Yeah, I went there. Are we scribes and Pharisees or are we the crowds? And if we are among the crowd, are we the ones who are everywhere to be found when we need healing and deliverance or a blessing and nowhere to be found at the foot of the cross when it becomes dangerous? And uh, if we count ourselves as disciples, we might just find ourselves among those who lash out violently with the sword or want to destroy a city in our anger or run when times get tough. Or grow resentful when we have the same problems as everyone else. Mistakenly thinking that somehow we've earned better. We should be exempt. Responding properly to the message is a year-by-year, day-by-day, sometimes moment-by-moment endurance challenge. I've had seasons where I was just not responding and it became more and more difficult for me to perceive him. That was on me. I've had other times of incredible intimacy with him. I've had other times when I was so wrapped up in my own anger and bitterness that I really thought I was hearing very clearly, but I wasn't. It's a challenge. We can never assume that we are currently part of that mega insider group where the kingdom is being revealed to because, you know, sometimes we position ourselves in ways that we cannot hear it. Like, say, when we're in our Torah terror space. I mean, dang. I thought I had it all figured out, but I was so full of myself that the Holy Spirit couldn't even get a room in the same city. Much less a word in edgewise to talk with me about my appallingly prideful and unloving behavior. But man, oh man, I thought I was on the inside track. I would... I'd blush, but I've had to learn to laugh at myself instead. What else are you going to do? And this brings us back to the parable of the sower last week. Uh, the sower, you know, Yeshua is generous in the extreme, throwing the seed, the word, absolutely everywhere. It's the soil that's the problem. And like how Agriculturally, we have seasons where the seed always needs to be re-sown, the soil always needs to be replowed. You know, we're like that as well. If we don't keep plowing and getting rid of those rocks and thorns, the soil isn't going to keep accepting the seed. 
Now that doesn't mean a loss of salvation, okay? But definitely a loss of spiritual perception. There's a lot more than one way to walk away from God. Heck, you can read your Bible three hours a day and as a habit <laughs> and be as far away from him as the east is from the west. It's the, you guessed it, response to the word, not the ingesting of it. We can take it in endlessly like a great academic quest, but it does not. if it does not change the way we interact with people, it is pretty much... A useless quest. Be back in a few minutes. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of Character in Context. This week we are talking about, um, we're in Mark, um, this is Mark, Gospel of Mark, part 19, and we're in uh, chapter 4. Yes, it takes me that long to get through all of this because, you know, I'm just, uh, I don't like to leave anything out. Although, I mean, I'm not even covering everything. I can't possibly cover everything. But, um, so, <laughs> you know, this is terrible. This is the second time I started recording because the first time it just went very badly. But we, uh, we spent the last half hour, uh, talking about uh, Isaiah 6 because we're talking about the, uh, the insiders and the outsiders who will know the secrets of the kingdom, who have, eyes to see, ears to hear, and who have understanding, which is better than the last time I recorded this when I said they got eyes to hear and ears to see. <laughs> yeah, we're just having one of those days. My nap today was a little bit too long. So, all right. So we went through all the prep stuff last half hour. Let's finally start going through this short section, one verse at a time, within the context of everything we've already talked about today. Verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. You know, he's never really alone. He Even when he's alone, he's surrounded by a crowd, all right? So Yeshua has left the main crowds behind. He was in the boat, sitting and teaching. Perhaps he has retreated to a more private setting and everyone has gone home to work and or eat. But he isn't really alone. The twelve are with him plus, quote-unquote, those around him. Is this the 72 that we see later? Is this the them that listened as he was teaching despite the opposition of his own family and the scribes? Quite probably is they were the ones singled out as the ones, quote-unquote, doing the will of his father, his brothers, sisters, and mother. But this isn't quite the intimate gathering we usually imagine, like up on the mountain when the twelve were commissioned, and they are in, th and there are in theory only tw thirteen people there. Um, perhaps this is in the courtyard of Peter's mother-in-law's home. But regardless, these gathered people plus the twelve, they ask him about the meaning of the parables. And remember from last week. The language makes it clear that there were more than one parable being taught, okay? But Mark only records the one. Verse 11. 
and he said to them to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of god but for those outside everything is in parables the word for mystery is mysterion a well-known word in greek which is often used to refer to the mystery cults of which we know next to nothing because i mean duh they were mystery cults you know snitches end up in ditches now of course roman mithraism is the most famous and i'm just going to insert this here if anyone tries to teach you about mithraism and calls him mithra just stop listening they haven't studied it's a pet peeve of mine that and the idea that he was born of a virgin and had 12 disciples one he sprang up full grown out of a rock two he isn't recorded as having any disciples and pretty much all the rumors out there are just totally fabricated but you know that's beside the point so that's the problem when you have a few pictures carved into walls and like nothing written hardly anywhere except for inscriptions on tombstones you don't you know what happens in the mystery cult stays in the mystery cult all right um now unlike our modern word mystery which is something that we can unravel if we're clever enough you know like agatha christie mysteries mysterion is a word that refers to something that must instead be revealed if i was going to rewrite this in order to make more sense to a modern audience i would put it this way to you has been given a revelation about the inbreaking of the reign of god into your reality but for those outsiders who aren't responding properly to his message all they get are vague metaphors that won't reveal anything except the shallowest of meanings in other words god is revealing to his insiders important truths about growth and discipleship in this new reality that he will be inaugurating at the cross although that part's still a secret but to outsiders all they got was a no duh story about agriculture let's face it on the surface the the parable of the sower is pretty much a yawn fest okay gee a guy wastes a bunch of seed and not all of it takes what an amazing revelation not thanks for giving up the heads up dang this is gonna change agriculture forever sometimes we really don't stop and think about what it would be like without our narrator filling us in what if we'd only heard half the story sure it was entertainment in a time without television but it wasn't blowing anyone's socks off all right verse 12 so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven and here, obviously, is where Yeshua alludes to, but does not quote, Isaiah 6, verse 9. Which is, by the way, by the way, a very Jewish thing to do. They didn't share our fussy sensibilities about absolute direct quotations, but, you know, that being said, it is not our culture, so we really shouldn't try to mimic it. And it doesn't always mean that when it was said and done it kept the spirit of the text in question or even made sense just take out the dead sea scrolls and other sectarian writings and look at the wacky liberties they took with the word 
Extra-biblical Jewish writings after the first century also did this, to varying degrees of both good and bad sense. Yes, people have been abusing scripture for thousands of years, <laughs> but Yeshua is absolutely following the sense of Isaiah 6-9 here. Really, the entire chapter. When he created, um, you know, varying degrees of revelation for people based upon how they were responding to God's message. But this verse here is also abused and has been used by dispensationalists and anti-Semites to somehow put forward the point that no Jews would perceive and no Jews would understand and no Jews would be forgiven. Well, this, of course, only makes sense when we forget that Yeshua's entire audience at this juncture is, in fact, very, very Jewish, as is he. Which reminds me of a very funny exchange in a movie from back in the 70s called Little Big Man. And in one scene, Jack, played by Dustin Hoffman, who is, of course, Jewish in real life, he, he's been living with the Cherokee since he was a boy, but was quote-unquote rescued by soldiers if I am recalling the plot correctly, is telling the very seemingly devout Mrs. Pendrake, I love Jesus and Moses and all of them. To which Mrs. Pendrake corrects. <laughs> There's quite a difference. Moses was a Hebrew, but Jesus was a Gentile, like you and me. <laughs> and it's funny, but it isn't funny. Because that is how a lot of people were trained to look at scripture for a long time. Martin Luther was like one of the first people in, in a long time when he wrote, Jesus was a Jew. Okay, And he didn't say Jesus because Jesus didn't exist as a word then. He would have, I don't know what he would have said in German. It doesn't matter. All right. Um, you know, scholars didn't look at it, don't look at it that way, of course. But laymen and sadly quite a few pastors uh, sometimes do look at that. But when we look at Yeshua as a Gentile and his disciples as Gentiles, all, all get, except Judah, Judas, of course. Judas is always Jewish in all the paintings. It just warps everything. But he and his followers for the first 10 years after the resurrection were almost exclusively Jews. Jews were the first evangelists, po apostles, pro prophets, duh, <laughs> teachers and shepherds, and the first martyrs. They were the first church bishops, deacons, and elders. They were just, frankly, the first. All right. So any idea of them en masse, not perceiving, hearing, or understanding, or being forgiven, is just rooted in faulty paradigms. In fact, scholars believe that as many, many as 20% of first century Jews in the Roman Empire were believers in Yeshua. This is no small number. There's a very real phenomenon being referred to here in alluding to Isaiah, and that is, again, that one's ability to perceive is directly related to listening to Yeshua. Note that these guys didn't magically understand the parable just because they were insiders. No, they sat at his feet and he revealed the meaning to them. Just as he does with us when we listen today and read his words as recorded in the Gospels. There's nothing mystical about it. He gave them the interpretation. Verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? 
How then will you understand all the parables? A lot of people say this like he's exasperated, but I don't think he was. I think he's proving a point. He gave the parable, but without further guidance. They would just be as blind, deaf, and unperceiving as the outsiders. Do you not understand this parable? No, of course you don't. How could you if no one has taught you the interpretation? How then will you understand all the parables? You won't. You can't. Not on your own. You need to listen to me and stick close and keep asking me questions. But people take that last line, how then will you understand all the parables and reinterpret it as some sort of indication that the key to the parable, the sower, um, parable of the sower will unlock every single parable. But as I've said in the past, and you know, it, it doesn't. Seed has multiple meaning, not only throughout scripture, but also throughout the parables themselves. It isn't always the word. And quite often it is people both good and bad. But, that being said, this is the beginning of a new theme in Mark, and that theme is growth. Our growth as disciples, the growth of the kingdom, etc. Because growth is of utmost importance to us, we need to get this right. We need to understand, one, how we grow, and two, how the kingdom grows. All right, there is one thing I want you to remember out of the last two weeks, it's this. Insiders can become outsiders, like Judas. And outsiders can become insiders, like Yeshua's family. Nothing is static. We can't write anyone in or out. I've tried. I've even wished. Shamefully, I've wished. But <laughs> it just doesn't work. Now, there are always people wanting to take advantage of words like mystery, and they flat out ignore the fact that Yeshua interpreted his own parable, and they come up with some wacky interpretations that I suppose only make sense either to 21st century people completely devoid of scriptural knowledge, or else people who really and truly want to believe that they know something special that in turn makes them special. This is how cults get started. But we have to remember that Yeshua did not work that way. Yes, he gave his insider group special revelation, but it wasn't wacky stuff. It was very down-to-earth and practical, even if it was shocking and surprising. It wasn't for the purpose of drawing people away from God and to himself. It wasn't for the purpose of drawing a sect out into the wilderness like the Essenes, apart from all the other Jews. Okay, hear me now. It was for the purpose of creating a worldwide community of peace. Peace even at the cost of his own life. But we humans were dangerous creatures, and we loved the thought of being in the know on something deep and mysterious. It's a sort of false, artificial, Gnostic set-apartness. We get some charismatic person who tells us that he knows a bunch of secrets and he will share them with us. And when we know them, our eyes will be opened and we'll be more like Yeshua and more pleasing to God. And, well, wait a minute. Is that Yeshua's message? Salvation by knowing stuff? 
Salvation through allegiance to a particular teacher or denomination? Salvation based on what shape you think the earth is? No. Scripture is clear. Salvation is by allegiance alone. Allegiance to God through believing his chosen messenger, Yeshua, who told us to live in a certain self-sacrificing and radically giving manner. Gosh, you know, I have seen so many things over the past 20 years. Let me see. There's a Hebrew Roots guy out there who has since denied Yeshua as Messiah. He had this revelation that women had absolutely no relationship with God except through their husbands or father. Um, and I, I read his reasoning. It was so insanely convoluted. Of course, he had to ignore so much of the Bible that it would have been funny if he hadn't roped in so many people. But he felt this special revelation had set him apart from everyone else. And that's the problem. There is nothing so crazy that won't rope people in, especially if you're telling them that they can be special too. I once knew a guy who believed there would be 144,000 two, uh, two witness teams, or maybe it was... 72,000 teams of two witnesses who would go around nuking unbelievers and apostates with fire from their mouths. And this guy really wanted to be one of them. In fact, he was sure he would be. I mean, longing for the day he would get to go out and murder people in cold blood. Uh couple weeks back, one of my Facebook acquaintances announced that her husband, and I use the term loosely because she was really his mistress, he had a wife and, and he took this much younger gal into their home of his own accord. Well, she believes that this guy is Michael the Archangel and announced that everyone had better be careful about their responses or they would be running the risk of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. I have met or know... And by no, I mean I don't know them, but, you know, know of. Eleven of the two witnesses from the book of Revelation. And only one was Moses. Why does everyone want to be Elijah and nobody wants to be Moses? You know, I, I know a kid that that went to Israel, and he was sure on the way there. I mean, he developed Jerusalem syndrome on the way there where he was sure that he was the reincarnation of Prophet Elijah. I was able to talk him down, but, you know, man, you know, you know, others, you know, who have boiled the Bible down, not to a radically loving way of life, but into number codes that uh, reveal secrets to them. People who manipulate Paleo-Hebrew to come up with secret codes, you know, you name it, people are out there doing it and not just doing it, but judging as inferior, inferior and even unsaved those who do not. But Yeshua didn't speak in code to his insiders. He interpreted the parables for them. This isn't an esoteric Gnostic religion where we are saved by knowledge. This is a nitty gritty practical religion that shows us how to live 
and how to sacrifice and how to serve and how to die on behalf of God and one another. There's no mystery about it. And we are supposed to be so committed to it and surrendered to it that unbelievers look at us joyful and self-sacrificing in the midst of trials and say, wow, they're different. The world needs more people like that. I aspire to be like that. I recently read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. He spent time in a concentration camp, and it is probably the most honest account in existence of what life was like, physically and psychologically, within the camps. He said something I'll never forget. It was a stunning admission. He said the best of them did not survive the camps. Yet my jaw hit the floor. He spoke of men of great faith, his fellow Jews, who would literally starve to death in order to give away their own food. They didn't last long. He spoke of men who didn't try to avoid the strenuous work camp duties that got people killed, but went on behalf of others. They did not last long. He spoke of sacrifice after sacrifice by men and women who didn't last long. And yet, here we are today focused on doing anything we can think of to try and survive. The absolutely shameful hoarding that went on back in March and April, goodness sake, it ended up being irrelevant. People who lived paycheck to paycheck didn't get what they actually needed because people with space and money were snatching up supplies they ended up having no need for. People like that last longer in the concentration camps, right? But what would Viktor Frankl had said about them? That shouldn't be us. Prepping during, during times of plenty is fine, and it doesn't hurt anyone. But it isn't prepping when there are shortages. It's hoarding. It's faithless. It's taking advantage. It's shameful. I find myself wondering about the people who died in the camps now more than I think about the survivors. Here's a quote from Frankel. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. Goodness, you know. May we all aspire to be the ones who died. And it was, you know, funny. Because, you know, you know, every once in a while you kind of succumb a little bit to fear. And I remember when the shortages were going on. And the Lord kept telling me, don't, don't you do it. You know, you know, you get what you need when you need. That's it. That's it. And, uh. There were times when I was very, very... And a few times I bought things that I didn't need. And and I'm very deeply ashamed now. I mean, I didn't do it very often, maybe once or twice. Um, but he kept telling me, you do not need to hoard. You do not need to stock up any more than you already have. You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to worry. You know, you've got this. I've got you. But still, you see people doing it, you know, and you think, 
oh, well, there's, you know, bottled water and toilet paper now, so I need to get it now because it might not be here later. And, you know, I live in a place where the, um, the shortages lasted I, maybe a month. And even with the month, there was never any risk that I wasn't going to be able to eat. There was never a time where there was not food. But um, how many people, you know, gave in to fear and hoarded not even... And, and I, I know some people who said, well, you know, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm putting aside and... and I'll be giving it away to people who need it. Well, the problem is you took it from the store. You took it from the store. The next person that went in living paycheck to paycheck, it wasn't there for them. They don't have your home address, so don't give me the whole, I'm going to give it out. Because you didn't, not to the person who needed it. Gosh, we got to be so honest with ourselves about what we're doing and why we're doing it and not give in to this kind of mindset. I don't even know how I started talking about that. But eh, probably a lot of you are angry at me right now. I don't really care. <laughs> Sometimes things need to be said. All right. Anyway, next week we're going to talk about the, the lamp and, uh, I'll talk to you then.